Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapunzel. As a kid, I was a bit of a TV obsessive. I wouldn't say that it was a good idea to feed this addiction I had, but I guess my constant domination of the living room television would eventually become too much for my family. Because when I was around 10, for no reason whatsoever, my family took a drive down Route 17 to an electronics and appliance store. I didn't know what for, but they were there to buy me my own television. This was a huge deal for me. We went through the store and I was wowed by all these different TVs. And as we walked down the aisle, the TVs kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we moved to the TV that I would eventually get. The TV that I got was, I think, on sale for about $30, and it was an RCA 13-inch black-and-white television. You might laugh at black-and-white television, but I was overjoyed. We got back in the car, packed it in the trunk. I think we stopped at Burger King on the way home. It was a really good day. And I got home and ran upstairs with the television. There was no cable, of course, in that time, so I had to rely on rabbit ears. So I set it up in my room, got it working, went through all the channels I could get, and we were right outside of New York, so we had a really good signal to get all of the main network channels and a lot of even UHF channels, which had towers in the swamps around my house. I did get a little talking to from my mother who told me, well, you can watch TV, but you still have to go to bed at a decent time. All the standard parent stuff. And, of course, these would all be rules that I would break as soon as possible. I would go up to bed and wait till everybody else was asleep. Then I would turn on the TV very low and watch late night television. There's a channel in New York called Channel 11 that was WPIX at the time. And that and Channel 9 showed great old television between 11 and midnight. If it wasn't Star Trek, which was an hour long, I would try to catch a half hour TV show. Then I would move on to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Now they would show The Honeymooners, The Twilight Zone, lots of good shows like that, classic stuff. Then they put on a show I had never seen before. I had never even heard of it, oddly enough. It's called Night Gallery. Now the original run of the show might have been a little bit before my prime television watching life. So this was all new to me. The premiere episode I saw was called The Caterpillar, and it freaked me out. The story is set in an island in the South Pacific, I think it's Borneo, and it's about a guy who's a jerk, and he wants to get this other guy's woman, so he is going to hire someone to put an earwig in the guy's ear. And I'll let you see the episode, because it's pretty freaky, as all Night Gallery episodes are. But I'll tell you why it freaked me out even more. I watched it, was creeped out, needed to watch more television, so I watched Johnny Carson. And I think I stayed up even longer, maybe even up till the TV sign-off that night. Yes, TV used to sign off. So the next day I woke up, and there was some loud hammering. What I hadn't realized is that I had left my window open all night. So I went to reach to pull down the latch, and on the screen on the outside of my window was an earwig. Just walking along, normal, we had lots of them in town. I had never thought about that fact, and they had never really freaked me out before. I just about lost it. I jumped out of bed, tripped over the wire on the television, almost knocked it over, ran into the hallway, into the bathroom, and started checking my ears. I was pretty convinced that an earwig had burrowed into my brain and was laying eggs at that moment. I wanted to tell this to my family and get them to check it out, but then they would ask, why would you be concerned about an earwig? And then they would know I was up all night watching TV. So, like many kids before me, I kept it a secret and worried and worried. My fears would only fade away with time as the summer progressed. 
I laid off Night Gallery for probably about a month and a half, two months. Then I caught another episode that wasn't about insects burrowing into your brain, and I was much happier. Since then, I've been an avid fan and have watched the show repeatedly over the years, most recently finishing up a full beginning-to-end marathon during the spring of this year. Night Gallery is one of those shows that often flies under people's radars, but it is classic TV horror in the gothic sense, and a real treat for those who haven't seen it yet. So on today's show, we're going to talk about Night Gallery. We're going to talk about the show's inception. We're going to talk a little bit about the show's creator, Rod Serling, how he came to the show, his work on it, why he left, how well the show did, and we'll talk about the strange formats the series has been presented in. Metagirl's back with a top five list. Jonathan's got a special retro rewind for us. This should be a jam-packed episode, so without further ado, let's start the show. hard to talk about Night Gallery without talking about its iconic creator, Rod Serling. Now, Rod Serling is a guy who's worthy of his own podcast, and I'll definitely be covering him soon, but just to give you a little background about Rod, besides being one of the most successful television creators and writers, Rod served in the U.S. Army as a paratrooper and a demolition specialist during World War II. He was in the 11th Airborne Division in the Pacific Theater and served from January 1943 to January 1945 when he was seriously wounded in the wrist and knee and it was awarded a Purple Heart and Bronze Star. When he came back, he started working in television and in 1959 created The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone ran for five years and had been canceled a couple of times during its run. Finally, when they decided to cancel it one last time in 1964, Serling decided to not fight them and let the show die. Then things get a little quiet. Serling did some writing, did some short stories, some more teleplays. Serling had not given up the horror or science fiction anthology idea, though. They say from the very time he stopped working on Twilight Zone, he was planning a new show, and that show would be Night Gallery. Now, the pilot for Night Gallery was broadcast in 1969, and audiences liked it enough that NBC decided to pick it up, but they didn't give it its own show. Instead, they aired it in an interesting format on a show called 4-in-1. Now, 4-in-1 was this television series that rotated different shows kind of to try them out. I guess we can think of it as the sort of mystery movie of the week where they would show Columbo one week something else another week. And in that, there were four shows, Night Gallery, McLeod, San Francisco International Airport, and The Psychiatrist. At the end of the first season of 4-in-1, they decided to drop the format, and they gave Night Gallery and McLeod their own series. McLeod would go on to become one of the most popular and longest-running series in the history of television, while Night Gallery would develop a cult following and in some ways become an infamous show amongst Serling fans. So before we get into the details of Night Gallery, we should talk a little about Rod Serling's mistake at the very beginning of the show. So Serling had been a producer on The Twilight Zone, and this left him open to constant fights with the network. 
he wanted this or he didn't want that. And it took up a lot of his time that he wanted to spend being creative. So when Night Gallery came along, the network said to him, well, we'll make you an executive producer. And this would allow him to have creative control. Serling didn't really at the time think that he wanted to be going back into that role that he'd been playing on The Twilight Zone and decided to waive off that offer. Instead, he would become a writer on the show. So instead, they brought on a producer named Jack Laird. And later on in the show, there would be a creative rift between Serling and Laird that would eventually cause Serling to almost disown the show. We will return after these messages. Everybody's heading for Woolworth and Woolco to get set for Halloween. There's costumes of TV favorites like Wonder Woman and the Hulk. There's popular characters from Star Wars. And there's superheroes like Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, and many more at bare bones prices. $2.38 to $4.17. And there's spook sticks, face pops, Halloween's wrapped candy of every kind, all at the favorite Halloween haunts. Woolworth and Woolco. What happens to ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances? The endings may surprise you on Tales from the Dark Side and Night Gallery. Weeknights at 11, 8 Pacific. Serling had great success with The Twilight Zone. So when working on Night Gallery, he didn't try to get too far away from that success. The show would be set in a fantasy world. And while The Twilight Zone dealt mostly with science fiction, with some horror elements thrown on, Night Gallery would be comprised mostly of what would be called gothic horror. Serling would come out at the beginning of every episode and introduce himself as a curator of a museum that is open at night. He would then introduce a work of art, be it a painting or a sculpture. Each of those works of art would be representative of the story we were about to see. Then the show would have multiple formats over the three years that it ran, but during the first few seasons there was usually two or three segments per show. Here's a great example of an introduction. Good evening. I'm your little old curator in this museum which we call the Night Gallery. There are horror stories and horror stories, elements of terror that take myriad forms. But this item has a built-in terror which can refrigerate even the most dispassionate amongst us. It has to do with a little beastie known as an earwig. A small bug that crawls into the human ear. And while inside, it doesn't whisper sweet nothings. It performs quite another function. Offered to you now on Night Gallery, a brand new nightmare which we call the Caterpillar. The show would air on Wednesday evenings on NBC at 10 o'clock. During that first season, where it was packaged with four-in-one, there would be six one-hour episodes. Then, during the second year, when it was promoted to a full season, it was given 22 hour-long episodes. The show was popular amongst some people, but it wasn't catching on. And during the third season, an executive at the network decided to cut the show's time slot to half an hour and move the show to Sunday evening, despite the fact that the cult status of the show was starting to actually turn into good ratings, especially in places like high schools and college campuses. This third season only lasted 15 
13 episodes before it was canceled. Ironically, during this third season, Night Gallery got its best ratings run, regularly beating its competition in that time slot that it moved into. Now, as I mentioned, Serling and Laird, who was the producer of the show, didn't always see eye to eye on everything. Serling took the show very seriously, writing and creating stories that hold up even today. He also hired some great writers like Richard Matheson and borrowed story elements from other great writers like Algernon Blackwood, Fritz Lieber, August Derleth, and one of my favorites, H.P. Lovecraft. Laird, on the other hand, approached the show as a producer approaches the show and tried to figure out ways to increase the ratings. He would make some odd choices on scripts and rewrites and made a decision that most Night Gallery fans will agree is probably the most controversial. He inserted these blackout comedy segments in the show. So you'd be watching one of the vignettes, which would be very serious, horror-based. It would end, and this little, maybe 30 seconds to a minute clip that is often pretty funny would come up. Then it would fade out and go right into the next episode. From what I understand, those angered Rod Serling a great deal. That, combined with Laird's increased control of the show and his ignoring of Serling, caused an unrepairable rift between Serling and the show. And by the third season, Serling basically disowned the series, which was very sad. So although the show was canceled in the third season, perhaps it was for the best since Serling's involvement would have probably shriveled and maybe completely disappeared by the next season. Season. The fact that Serling had divorced himself slightly from the show caused a great amount of myths about his involvement in the show to grow. One of the saddest of those myths is that Serling was just the host of the show and didn't write any of them, or that when he did write them, they were rewritten by somebody else. And those are just attacks on the talent of the man. And nobody's sure where these misconceptions started, but they've spread like wildfire. A third of the vignettes written for Night Gallery were scripted by Rod Serling. That means 35 out of the 98 stories told on Night Gallery were penned by Rod Serling. Another popular myth is that Rod Serling's work was heavily rewritten on the show. This is also not true. And how do we know this? Well, when Rod Serling retired, he donated his drafts and scripts to Ithaca College, where they're in the Serling archive. And people have read through them, and they show that although there were some rewrites on some of his episodes, the majority of his work was run completely intact. Maybe it was an angry executive, or maybe it's just misinformation told through the grapevine. But however it happened, these rumors are a shame. Because Night Gallery, although not completely Rod Serling's brainchild, there's a lot of his creative genius up on the screen. We will return after these messages. This is the Morgan family coming home from the lake. Ed and Marilyn have been married 12 years. That's Kelly, Sue, and Casey in the back seat. They've driven this road a dozen times before, and nothing ever happened. But today is different. Today, Ed will become a killer. And here's his weapon. Good old Ed Morgan. A mighty careful man in his own home. He can't imagine how anyone could have been so careless. Ed Morgan. Every man. Anyone who handles fire in any form is a potential killer. Anyone can start a fire and never even know it. Please be very careful with fire. Please. 
Only you can prevent forest fires. Just like in the Twilight Zone, the show night gallery attracted an incredible array of talent, both in front of and behind the camera. Just in the first episode alone, you had Roddy McDowell and Ossie Davis. You had Richard Kiley, Tom Bosley, Joan Crawford. And behind the camera on not one, but perhaps three vignettes from the show, you had Steven Spielberg. So there was a creative powerhouse at work here. And when you watch the show, it's a treat almost every time to see who shows up who's familiar. You have science fiction royalty in the show. You have Vincent Price, Bill Bixby, Leonard Nimoy, both in front of and behind the camera. And the show would bring in people you wouldn't expect. One of my favorite episodes called Rare Objects, which was written by Rod Serling himself, has Mickey Rooney playing a real tough mobster and Raymond Massey playing a collector of rare antiquities. And here's the spoiler. Some of those rare antiquities are people. Speaking of favorite episodes, now here's Metagirl with another great top five list. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl bringing you the top five tales of terror from the television series Night Gallery. At number five is Vignette 36, Camera Obscura. A heartless moneylender gets his just desserts with the help of a client's unusual telescopic device. At number four is Vignette 47, A Feast of Blood. A repulsive suitor evens the score with a calculating beauty by presenting her with an unusual gift, a fur brooch that seems almost alive. Number three is Vignette 35, Cool Air. Based on a tale by H.P. Lovecraft, this is a haunting love story of a young woman and her late father's colleague, a man clinging desperately to life in a refrigerated apartment. At number two is Vignette 26, I'll Never Leave You, Ever. The wife of a loathsomely ill farmer decides to force nature's hand with the help of an old crone skilled in the black arts. And the number one tale of terror from Night Gallery is Vignette 60, The Caterpillar. A bored man on a Malaysian plantation employs an exotic accomplice, an earwig, in his gruesome plot to assassinate a romantic rival. And there you have it, the Retroist's Top 5 Tales of Terror from Night Gallery. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. As I noted, the show had some great talent both in front of and behind the camera. Some of the people behind the camera were the artists who made the paintings and sculptures that you saw in the night gallery. All the paintings for the show were actually done by an artist named Tom Wright, and the sculptures were done by two people, Logan Elston and Philip Vanderlei. Fans of night gallery might remember this. That was the theme that was composed by Gil Malay. During its four-in-one year, Night Gallery had a different theme. But when the show was brought to television, the producers wanted to take a different, more modern musical approach. 
So they contracted Malay to make one of the first all-electronic TV themes. Malay had done the score for the Robert Wise film, The Andromeda Strain, the year before. His version of the theme is the one that is most associated with Night Gallery. The original theme, which was composed by Billy Goldenberg, sounded like this. For some reason, when the show moved to a half-hour format, they decided to change the theme again and went to a more traditional theme, and that one was composed by Eddie Sauter, who was the leader of the famed Sauter Finnegan Orchestra and a very prestigious big band arranger. That final theme sounded like this. Night Gallery has been plagued with problems, so much so that there could be a painting of the show Night Gallery in the actual Night Gallery. Fans are pretty hardcore, but they're often confused by the very strange way that the show has been chopped up for its run in syndication. That's why there's often confusion as to how many episodes of the show there actually are. The way that Universal cut up the show so that it could run in syndication, there would be 98 episodes of Night Gallery, although some sources claim that there's 99, which I have no idea how they got. In actuality, there were 43 episodes of the show, but as I said, the show was always made up of different vignettes, so the total number of vignettes equals 98. So when the show was going into syndication, they carved it up to make it last longer. And when they did that, they even added insult to injury by taking a completely unrelated and kind of boring show called The Sixth Sense, which starred Gary Collins, and just sort of threw it into Night Gallery as if it had been produced by Night Gallery. They went even so far as to include Rod Serling intros. The show itself is not that common in syndication anymore. For a while, it was run on the Encore Mystery cable network. And this was great because it allowed you to see the show in its original format. The show is also available in some markets on the Retro Television Network. Sadly, I am not in one of those markets. So I've been forced to look for my night gallery elsewhere, namely DVD. The first season of the show was released on August 24, 2004. Season 2 was released on November 18, 2008, and it's actually missing an episode. That episode was called Witch's Feast, and the reason it wasn't included is because they had lost portions of the episode, so they weren't able to include it, and they promised that when and if they release Season 3, that that will be included. 
a very revealing and I think very cool part of the season two DVD is the audio commentary with Guillermo del Toro, who you probably know from Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth and the upcoming Hobbit movie. It turns out that del Toro is a huge fan of Night Gallery, and the show had a really big influence on him. So if you're a del Toro fan, hey, that should be praise enough that you might want to check out Night Gallery. For those who want a really quick fix, NBC has added it to their video rewind on their website, and you can also catch a limited number of episodes on Hulu. Was Night Gallery as good as Twilight Zone? Most people would argue that Twilight Zone was the better show. But if you're a fan of straight-up horror, there's not a lot of shows that you could count on. Night Gallery was dependable, and week after week, it delivered the goods. You just need to look at its inspirations, Lovecraft and Matheson, Derleth, to know that this is a show that took horror seriously. And not hacky, bloody horror, but horror that really makes you think or might surprise you. The show in its own way is tragic in that it was the television swan song for probably one of the premier television geniuses that America has ever produced, Rod Serling. When you read about the show and its history and the problems he had, you can't help but feel his frustration and see a guy who just wanted to tell a good story, trying to understand why the system was working against him. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagirl for the great top five list. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This has been a retroist production. Goodbye.